Okay, well, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 again today. We're going to take verses 12 through 21. And uh, I was going to go further in the, the chapter, decided not to. There are some, some moments in Scripture that you read and they just bother you. And this is one of those moments for me. Like, if you're reading through your Bible, uh, sometimes you, you can read a passage of Scripture and it can cause all sorts of different emotions and things like that. But this particular passage today, it, it's one of those passages that I read and when I think about this moment, it just it bothers me because the truths that we study in this moment are jarring. The implications or the conclusions that we can draw having studied this moment are extreme. The, the application of, uh, of this content of scripture that we're reading today, it, it's, it's incredibly convicting, particularly convicting. And so writing this sermon, studying this passage, it bothered me, but I believe it bothered me in a helpful and a healthy way. So I hope as I study this passage with you today, I want you to be bothered. I think we're supposed to be bothered by it because it's a productive way of learning. And so why, why is it so bothersome? Well, it's because we're talking about Judas Iscariot today. Not exactly a super happy moment in Scripture, right? We, we know uh, about Judas. We know he's one of the 12 disciples. We know that he was one of the disciples that was, that was especially trusted by the other disciples. He was in charge of the money. He was the treasurer, right? You, you want to put someone you really trust over the money. And that was Judas for these guys. And right now, I believe Judas is in hell. So with all that said, isn't that just a bothersome thing to think? I don't even like to say it out loud. It just bothers me. That is a jarring truth to even acknowledge. Now, I know there's some that make the argument that Judas is not in hell right now. Um, and and the, honestly, the problem with those arguments is they're just not that compelling. And they don't use a lot of scripture. And so I, I just, I'm not convinced by them. But Again, the implication, implications of this betrayal that we're going to study today are, are bold, they're extreme. I think the application from this text is especially convicting and, and helpful for us, so we're going to strive to understand this well, confront those jarring truths, and hopefully understand and, and apply this text in a helpful way today. But let's remember where we left off. We left off in the first 11 verses of this chapter. Judas, in the last two verses, verses 10 and 11, Judas had just met with the chief priests. And those chief priests that Judas met with, they had been trying to kill Jesus for years. They have been plotting and scheming. How can we kill Jesus? How can we discredit him? They couldn't find a way to kill him without making seemingly all of Israel upset because people loved him. His ministry was massive, and it would have made a lot of people upset. There would have been riots. So they just didn't know how to pull this off in just the right way, so they tried to discredit Jesus. We studied those moments over and over, especially on, like, question day that we studied in Mark. But they, they couldn't figure it out. They were at their wit's end. How are we going to kill Jesus? That's when Judas shows up to talk to the chief priests, and they're like, man, this is it. This is, the, this is the missing piece of the puzzle that we've been trying to solve. Judas, who lives in the inner circle, he's one of Jesus' buddies. He wants to betray Jesus. He's going to hand him over. That's the opportunity that we needed. And so from that point, Judas 
was actively seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus, and nobody saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming except Jesus. Jesus saw right through Judas, just like he sees right through you and I. He saw this coming a mile away, and I think as we contemplate how Jesus handles this reality that is before him, it's so convicting, it's so jarring again, and there's a lot to learn here. So Jesus, being the only one that knows what Judas is going to do other than Judas, he's trying to set up one last moment with his disciples. He's trying to do two things. He wants to have a Passover meal with them, and he wants to provide an opportunity to love Judas and to offer him a, an opportunity to confess and repent, which we know he does not take. But that explains, that dynamic explains how and why these events unfold like they do. So read along with me here, or I'm going to read it, read it to you, you can follow along, in verses 12 through 16. This is, this is setting up the Passover meal there um, just a, a day or two before Jesus is on the cross. So, and, and, the, and on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room and where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he has told them, and they prepared the Passover. So remember, what Mark just told us just before this is that Judas was scheming with the chief priests. So while Judas was doing that, Jesus evidently was organizing and preparing the Passover feast with his disciples. And so when you, were, when you would go to the Passover festival in, Jer in Jerusalem, you obviously would have this feast to remember that day when, after the 10th plague, or just before the 10th plague, when the, when the Israelites were released from slavery to the Egyptians. They ate the Passover lamb the night before and then put the, the blood over the doorposts in preparation of the angel of death. And so they're, they're remembering all this, and when you would celebrate then the Passover festival, you would want to go to Jerusalem and have this Passover feast. And you had to do that inside the city walls of Jerusalem. So remember, Jesus is staying two miles outside of town at Bethany. That's where Lazarus is at. That's where Simon the leper is at. So he, he's traveling now towards Jerusalem with his disciples. He sends two of them in there to prepare the Passover feast. And what that meant was you need to go inside the city walls. You need to find a place. And so you would, if you had your family there, you would find someone who would host one of these meals and you could have the Passover meal for the Passover festival there. So this is normal activity to set this up in advance. And so he sends two of his disciples. Now Luke tells us who the two disciples are, and this is important. Luke tells us that it's Peter and John in Luke's account, Luke 22, verse 8. Peter and John are the ones who go in there. Why Peter and John? Why not Judas? He's the guy with the money. Well, because Jesus knows that Judas is actively seeking an opportunity to betray him. He's going to keep Judas in eyesight. Judas, you stay with me. I'm going to send Peter and John. They're going to prepare the Passover feast. They're going to find where it's going to be at. And I've already got some things prearranged. So he sends Peter and John in there. They go into the city. 
and they're told, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. That's how you're going to know you're in the right place. And you're going to follow him. Now that, that doesn't sound like much to you and I, but that's a strange thing to read. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. That's odd. Because typically women were, were who would carry jars of water. If you were a man carrying water, you would carry it in a skin. You wouldn't carry it in a jar on your head or, or, or anything like that. That was, that was how a woman did that, would do that. But Jesus says, how you'll know you're in the right place, you need to find the guy who's carrying the jar of water, like a woman would. So guys, you know like when you're shopping with your wife and she asks you to hold her purse and you're walking around the store with her purse and you feel like you've got to explain it. So, well, this is mine, it's my wife's. And everybody's like, I don't care. <laughs> but, but it feels strange because you typically don't carry around a purse. Like that's what this would, this would be like, sort of like that. This, this man is, is carrying a jar of water because he's secure in his manhood and he doesn't mind. I need water, I'm thirsty, I like to use jars, deal with it. But that's how they were able to find this guy. And uh, so there's, there's, there's clearly, is, is something secretive happening here? Did he meet with Jesus earlier and said, okay, I'll do something out of the ordinary so you can kind of find me by stealth? I'll, I'll, I'll be carrying a jar of water. Is, is it like a Mission Impossible kind of vibe going on here? We don't know exactly, uh, but it, it kind of has a little bit of that vibe. I think the point of the matter is whether this is orchestrated by Jesus uh, supernaturally, or he just got there and organized this in advance. The point is Jesus is in control. This is kind of like the triumphal entry. Remember, he sends his disciples in. He's like, oh, you're going to find a donkey colt tied uh, up in there. You need to get that and, and come back here so I can come marching or come riding into the, the city of Jerusalem. If somebody hassles you, just let them know you're going to bring it back. You know, It's kind of like that. Like Jesus had prearranged this in some way, whether supernatural or not, we don't know for sure. But Jesus, just like that moment, he's in control. He has orchestrated this no matter how you slice it. Okay, so the Passover meal, we're, we're, we're going to get into the Passover meal more next week, uh, get into some of those details, but the Passover festival experience would include this meal. It was centered around this meal, and they, you would go into, into town, and you would acquire a lamb. You would have to take that lamb to the temple to be slaughtered. This is a uh, uh, fun fact. This is how we know or how we estimate how many people came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. Because one of the things that they recorded in that day was how many lambs were slaughtered at the temple. And so Josephus, a, a, an ancient historian around this time, who, he would record things like this. And, and, and it, the, the number that keeps coming up in those records is like over a quarter of a million lambs would be slaughtered every year for the Passover festival. They figured 9 to 12 people per lamb. And that's how they get millions of people showing up to Jerusalem at this day. And so you would acquire your lamb, you'd take it to the temple, you'd have it slaughtered, and then you would go purchase unleavened bread, bread with no yeast in it. And of course, that was again to commemorate that day when, when God delivered his people from slavery. They were packing everything up in such a rush, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. So they didn't bother to put yeast in it, no leaven. So it was unleavened bread, and so they, they would grab that, and, and run. And so it's known as the, the bread of affliction. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 16. And then in addition to the unleavened bread and the, and the, the lamb, you would purchase wine, bitter herbs, and haraseth sauce that you could dip the bread into 
keep that little detail in your mind. It'll, it'll resurface later. You would dip the bread into the Horoseth sauce. And again, we'll get into more of those details next week when we study the Last Supper. So they went to a large upper room that was furnished and ready. Because people in Jerusalem were ready to host millions of people to celebrate the Passover. This was a great opportunity to, to host people and, and obviously a big source of revenue for Jerusalem. So they went in there. It was already furnished. It would have low tables. Low tables. They would have these uh, couches that, that would like just be barely off the ground and pillows. And so you would lay, recline on your elbow and, and, and sit in a square actually. Now, I know that blows up Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. But you got to know, Leonardo, as amazing as that Ninja Turtle was in his painting, it's not accurate. It's not accurate. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting uh, is, is, they weren't like facing the camera and posing, right? They sat in a, cer- in a square, <laughs> they sat in a square uh, around a low table, not not a high table like what we would be used to and, and things like that. So uh, not, not accurate. <laughs> my, at Christmas, uh, my dad, he, he recently got this Last Supper uh, sculpture. I, I don't know if it was carved out of wood or if it was plastic or what, but he, wanted, he was all excited to show me. I can't help myself. Like, I'm just that, I, I just, that's not accurate at all, Dad. I, I, I kept my mouth shut, though. I was like, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Leonardo's right on. No, it's, it's 100% wrong. They would have been sat in a square. But again, we're going to get into the actual supper next week. So now Jesus, Judas, and the rest of the disciples, and possibly even more than the 12, then came to Jerusalem. Peter and John already had the meal set up, already had the place ready. When they arrive, here's what's going on. Let's pick up in verse 17 through 21. And when it was evening... He came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now every week, I like to give you a homework passage. I like this this study time together to be complemented with individual devotional time. One of the passages, again, you can read about this moment in the other Gospels. You can read about it in Matthew and Luke and John. But you really need to read John's account. So John 13, verses 1 through 30, is a fantastic... I'm going to be referencing some additional information. And it's going to all be coming from John's uh, account. Because he adds so many more details to this moment that are so important and understanding the dynamics of this moment. One of, the, one of the things that is exclusively in John's gospel that is so well known in this moment is that this is when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. John tells us all about that. So one by one, when they get to this upper room, Jesus is going around and washing their feet. He's doing this in a very humble way. Only Peter objects. 
Like, what are you doing? No, you can't be washing my feet. That's like what a servant would do. You can't do that. And, and then Jesus rebukes him. And, and so Peter, you know, Peter's awesome. I could talk about Peter all day long. And he's just like, well, then wash everything. Well, don't stop the, at the feet. Let's, let, let, clean me completely. And so, but, but Jesus goes around there and he's washing the feet of the disciples. And then he says this, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So eyebrows would have raised at that moment. So as soon as they get there, the activities that are taking place are very peculiar. What is Jesus doing washing our feet? Why is he saying this? He starts to drop a hint almost immediately that he knows something is off and that he knows someone is going to do something bad. But then here in Mark, he says it real clearly. Finally, it's not like Jesus was muttering these things under his breath. He's saying this in a way that they can hear and understand him. He says, truly I say to you. Now, again, you've heard me say this many times in Mark. Anytime Jesus says, truly I say to you, He's telling everybody, stop what you're doing. I have something especially important to announce or to say or to teach you. Listen to what I'm saying. So everybody would have stopped what they're doing. Everybody would have been focused in on what Jesus is going to say next because he's dropped so many big truths up to this point, starting with that exact phrase. Truly, I say to you, what's he going to say this time? One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I mean, this would have been so shocking. This sets off a, a, a ruckus in the room. Is it I? Who? Is it me? It goes, it goes around one by one. Is it me? Is it me? Surely it wouldn't be me. Now, this is, this is an interesting uh, sentence to translate. And so I get, I get confused with that response um, because some of your translations will say, surely not I. And then, like, my ESV translation says, is it I? So I always wonder, like, how did they ask that? You know, I, maybe they all kind of asked in different ways, and, and maybe some of them were like, is it I? Like, they're worried that it's actually going to be them. And then maybe other disciples are saying it more like, surely it's not I. Surely it's not me. We know, you and I both know it's not me, right? And then it gets to Judas, and he's pointed out specifically by Matthew as saying, there's no way. Surely it's not me. We all know it's not me. And Jesus said, oh, it's, it's one of you. It's one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, that wasn't said in a way that would target Judas, especially in that moment, necessarily. So they would have been sharing these dipping sauces and, and herbs and the wine and stuff like that. A lot of stuff's going on. This is just Jesus' way of saying it's one who is eating here with me, one who has dipped their bread in that Horoseth sauce, but he's making it a point that it's one of the 12. That's another reason we think that there might have been a lot of disciples there beyond the 12, that Jesus at this moment was saying, no, I'm talking about the disciples at my table right here in this big room of tables. I, 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 it's right here, it's one of the 12, 20 you guys I'm sharing food with right now. But nobody suspected Judas. No one jumped up and said, oh, I knew, I figured it was Judas. No one said anything like that. Now, there's a side conversation, though, you got to remember. When you go into John's gospel, he's got all these extra details. So there's a side conversation taking place. When Peter hears this, again, I, I can't ever fight the urge to think about what Peter is thinking. He's the most relatable guy in, in, the, in the Bible to me. 
He's got to take action. He's t- he takes action first and thinks later. And that makes a ton of sense to me. <laughs> That's just like, like that, that computes for me, uh, un- unfortunately. It's his biggest strength and his biggest weakness. But, but Peter in this moment, he motions to John because John is sitting right next to Jesus. Find out who it is. Let's do something. Let's get something going. We've got to solve this issue. This is Peter's taking action. Find out who this is. And so remember, they're reclined at the table. They're on the ground. And so they, would have been lay, they would have been, wouldn't have been seated at the table like in a chair like us. They would have been laying on the ground like this on their left elbow. It's customarily. This is so uncomfortable for me. It, like, I, I would have been here for like five minutes in the middle like, ah, ah, my, my shoulder. <laughs> like, so, you know what I'm talking about? They're like, oh, I've got to rotate to this side. Uh, but they would have been on that left shoulder. That's just how they did things. And so they would have been around the square table. And so literally, Peter's on this side, and he leans back to John and says, dude, and he probably said dude, he, dude, you got to ask Jesus who's going to betray him. And so it says that John leans against the chest of Jesus to ask him. That would have been so accurate because all, Jesus, who is right behind him, he would have just literally leaned back against his chest and said, who is it? Oh, man, i got to get off the ground. My shoulder hurts. But that's how stuff would have went down. Who is it? Jesus, this is Jesus' response. A little more specific here. It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Okay, that's pretty specific. He dips the bread, and it says specifically in John's account that he gave it to Judas. It's like, wow, did, did he not just explicitly identify Judas in that moment? I still, now this is just me and this is just speculation, I still don't think anyone there thought Judas was the man that was going to betray Jesus. I still don't think so. I still think, because if you keep reading in John's account of this moment, even at the point Judas gets up and leaves, even at that point, it says specifically in John's account, oh, we just figured he was going to get more food. We didn't think he was leaving to betray Jesus. We didn't th- he wasn't pointed out like that to them, and they didn't have any suspicion that Judas was going to be the one that betray- bet- betrayed Jesus. When he left, they figured he was going to run an errand, go get some more lamb or whatever. They ran out of wine. We don't know. But they didn't suspect he was going to betray Jesus. So nobody concluded that. And, and you've got to understand, again, th- think about everything we know about Peter. Think about everything we've studied about the apostle Peter. If he had, if he, if he told John, find out who it is, Jesus, Jesus identifies Judas, John picks up on the fact, if Peter acknowledges all of that as an explicit identification of Judas, you've got to know, you've got to know enough about Peter at this point that before Judas could even get that morsel of bread into his mouth, Peter would have already taken flight. He would have been jumping off the top ropes in flight to crush Judas in that moment. If he even got a whiff of suspicion that Judas was going to betray Jesus, Peter would have killed him. He is not a good person, which makes him so relatable to us. And we know he's going to try to kill people. He literally tries to kill someone defending Jesus here momentarily. We're going to get to that later in the gospel. So there is no question in my mind, studying scripture, that nobody at that moment, at the Last Supper, was thinking Judas. 
Only Jesus. Jesus knew every intent of Judas. Jesus knew before they even set up the meal that Judas was actively seeking an opportunity to betray him. But Jesus wanted to go through with the Passover meal because he wanted an opportunity to teach his disciples. He taught them so many things in that moment. But he also wanted an opportunity to give Judas a chance to confess and repent, which we know he did not. So I didn't keep going in this passage of Scripture. We're going to study the Last Supper more next week. But I just wanted to stop and reflect on these truths. Because again, isn't it jarring? Isn't it extreme? I want to look at some implications, some conclusions that we can reasonably come to having studied this moment. Three implications we're going to, we're going to learn from Judas, that, that we learn from Judas. And I, and I want to study three applications of this text as we consider how Jesus responded in this moment. So let's start with the three conclusions or three implications we can draw from an observation of Judas. Here's number one, and I hate this truth. Even after years of loyalty to the Christian way of life, some people will give up, give in to temptation, and walk away suddenly. I hate that truth. But we learn it in everyday life, and we learn it in the Bible. Judas lived as close as anyone possibly could to Jesus. He lived with him for years. He traveled with him. He learned from him. He saw miracles. He, he heard the teaching. He participated in the miracles. And yet one day, he woke up and he turned his back on the people who depended upon him. He turned his back on them and he set out not only to, to, to leave them, but to destroy them. That might be one of the most painful realities that we have to face as Christians in a, in a community of believers because from time to time people even after years of loyalty to the church even after years of loyalty to a, a Christian community one day here's here's the truth one day sometimes people will just wake up and it's like they can flip a switch and all of a sudden they don't believe what they said they believed they don't do the things they used to do and they bail on the church. I hate it, but it's true. It happened then and it still happens now. People will just bail on the church. They won't just bail on the church of, of people who love them and have cared for them for years, but they'll bash that community. They'll set out to actively, you know, throw them under the bus. It's, it's terrible, you know, after being loved by the church for so long and living and community with people that this happens, but some people can just, after experiencing that for years, they can just wad it up and throw it in the trash like nothing ever happened. That just happens. You can ask, you, you, can, you can just go, you could ask any pastor you want that's had any length of ministry or experience whatsoever, ask them to tell you, ask them to tell you about a story of when someone just stopped coming and stopped believing and actively opposed the Christian faith one day and they could tell you several of those stories and they'll tell you that every single one of those moments took years off the end of their life and it's true I promise that's the first thing that we can learn from Judas a painful reality that we're confronted with here's the second thing what we learn from Judas uh, is that when when people come to Jesus with an agenda that doesn't match his agenda it's just not gonna last 
That's just a painful reality. So remember what Judas was about. We, when, when we studied Judas, we know that he was extremely caught up in finances and the, and the money. He wanted to be wealthy. We know that he had zealot-like tendencies. He wanted a Messiah that would show up but be a strong leader that would raise up Israel to be out from underneath the thumb of Rome. He wanted an insurrectionist. And so when Jesus would, would teach and claimed to be the Messiah, but he would teach about dying and raising again and sacrificial living and the gospel and things like Judas just wasn't really interested in that. Judah, Ju- Judas, he has, that, that's, yeah, that's actually where his, name's, where his name uh, comes from. Judas is like Judah, God's people praise. Uh, but Judas, he had his own agenda. He wanted what he wanted And he wanted to associate with Jesus so he could get what he wanted. That is such a common occurrence and a common reality even today, is it not? People around the globe are showing up to church right now. Millions of people are showing up to church and there's a million different reasons. Even in this room, everybody showed up to church today, but not everybody's reason is exactly the same. And for a lot of people around the world, the church universal People are showing up, but they have an agenda. They have something that they want so badly, and they believe that the church or Jesus or this message is a means by which they can accomplish their agenda. And so many times we're guilty of this, right? Hey, I showed up to church with an agenda in my early 20s. It's a pretty strong agenda. It wasn't like the gospel. It was a girl named Amanda Harrell. That was my agenda. Church all of a sudden was really important to me. It didn't have anything to do with Jesus. I was thanking Jesus, though. <laughs> you know, sometimes we, we, we come to church for all sorts of different agendas and reasons, but here's the thing. Over time, when we participate as, as a body of believers, we're supposed to set our agendas aside. As we study through Scripture, the idea is that we conform to the agenda of God. We do this from one degree to the next in our daily life, but from one degree to the next in how we think. We want to change how we think about things. This agenda, the gospel, what Jesus is about, is the most important agenda. And when we gather here, that is what this has to be about, or it's just not going to last. So some people, they go to church for, for years Because they have this one agenda, this one thing that they want. And when they still don't get that after years, they flip it off like a switch and disappear. Because they didn't get what they wanted. They never did conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't really become a believer or anything like that. And when you don't conform to the will of God and his, if you're not about his gospel, it's just not going to last. You're going to bail eventually. That's the second truth. We, we, uh, the second implication we can draw from Judas that I think is relevant. Here's a third one. There are many of these. I just boiled it down to three for me. This one's important too. Regret, what we learned from Ju- uh, Judas is regret isn't repentance. Regret is not the same thing as repentance. Like a person can leave the faith and they can feel really guilty about it. They can, they can uh, experience remorse. They can be miserable. But that's not the same thing as repentance. Judas felt awful. He, the 30 pieces of silver that they, that they tried to pay him, he, he literally threw it back at him. He didn't want it. He felt terrible. This is wrong. This is bad. He felt awful, but he never would repent. He regretted what he did to the point in which he hanged himself. But he never came back and repented. He knew that Jesus would have taken him back. 
even dying on the cross. But Judas never would come back. And did you hear what Jesus said? One of the harshest things I think Jesus says is what he says about Judas. Woe to the son of man, who, uh, woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If Judas is in heaven right now, I don't think that's true. If he's in heaven right now, then it's a good thing he was born. He's in heaven. And I think Jesus said that because the truth of the matter is he did not repent. He's in hell. It's just, that's the most compelling argument to me. Again, I, I, I know Jesus, and he would have taken Judas back. If he would have been there asking for forgiveness right there at the feet of Jesus on the cross or later, Jesus would have forgiven him for sure. This is some, those truths bother me. Those are three reasonable conclusions I think we can draw from Judas. I want to talk about three applications of this text, though, when we examine Jesus and his response to Judas. Here's number one. Here's what we observe about Jesus, and we can apply this directly to our life in many ways. When facing betrayal, never choose disobedience. Jesus saw this coming. He knew what Judas was going to do. He said it out loud. And still, he chose obedience. All Jesus had to do in this moment is say, traitor, right there, Judas, I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. Get him, fellas. That's really all he had to do. But he didn't. He, he just chose grace and love. He's washing his feet. One of you isn't clean. He's eating dinner, serving them. One of you eating with me and dipping in this dipping sauce is going to betray me. It's, it's incredible. It's so convicting, that truth is. Like, I think for many of us, when we are facing betrayal, uh, when, when, when we know someone's going to wrong us, we feel like, and the way we often response is, it, it respond is, you know, we're, it's, it gives us a license to sin. Oh, you're going to do something hurtful and mean to me? Then I'm going to do something hurtful and mean to you. Oh, do I even think you're going to do something hurtful and mean to me, but you haven't done it yet? Well, then I'm going to preemptively get you first. That's the most common one, right? Man, he never chose disobedience as a way of solving his problems or coping with issues. It's an incredible truth that we learn, and we can apply that teaching immediately to our life. Here's the second thing about Jesus. He teaches us to show love and grace all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Again, the betrayal was in full view. But yet he chose humility and love and service, including washing the very feet of the person he knew was going to betray him. Saying, not only within earshot, but probably making eye contact. One of you will betray me. How do you think Judas felt in that moment when he's dealing with this? He's actively seeking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. He, Jesus is washing his feet, talking about how someone's not clean. Jesus is passing around the bread and, and wine and things like that, and, and he's talking about how one of you will betray me. He says it out loud. How's Judas keeping it together in this moment? You can just imagine the beads of sweat rolling down his forehead. You can imagine the jitters that he has. He's, he's trembling probably. Am I going to get away with this? Do I want to get away with this? Am I going to do this? Am I not? He's Obviously, he knows Jesus knows and Jesus, in all of that situation, he just keeps showing love and grace all the way up until the end. 
know, again, like when we get in those situations, especially when we're facing betrayal, that's when paranoia, paranoia tends to set in and how we respond. And, but Jesus is just full of patience. He's, but he's, he's cautious, and, but he's just full of grace, which leads us to this third truth that I think teaches us just how we interact with this world knowing these realities are here. You and I can't know what's inside of the heart of every person we interact with. We don't know what's going on in their life necessarily all the time. We don't know what's going on in their mind like what Jesus can. But here's what Jesus teaches us in his approach to, to just doing life and doing ministry. He is as wise as a serpent and innocent as a, as a dove whenever he nudges people towards the, the right direction. And that's something that you and I need to, need to reflect in our lives. Like, that's something that Jesus said, right? Be as wise as a serpent, as innocent as a dove. And so, and we, we've talked about that verse actually in this, uh, this series, but Jesus, Jesus subtly offers Judas chance after chance after chance just to love him and to offer an opportunity to confess and repent. But you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? That's like that old saying goes. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Isn't that a frustrating thing? Like, you just imagine being with a horse that is dying of thirst, literally dying of thirst. You take it to a pond, and it just won't drink, and it just dies. That's such a frustrating thing to even think about. But, like, Jesus just keeps loving him and showing grace and providing opportunity after opportunity. But eventually, and here's something really important, those opportunities run out. Jesus gives him chance after chance after chance, but eventually he stops giving him a chance. Did you, did you uh, it, well, if you study John's account of it, there's this moment where Jesus is like, hey, Judas, just go do what you're going to do. He looks at him, I've had enough. I've tried, I've tried. Just go do what you're going to do. And then he gets up and leaves, and no one suspects a thing. No one knows what's going on there except Jesus. So when we're, faced, when we're faced with these truths, these implications, and we think about these applications and things like that, we think about Judas, how do you respond? What will you do when, when faced with these same opportunities to confess and repent? What will you do? Like again, people are showing up to church for all sorts of different reasons today, and many people who are showing up to church all around the world today, they are incredibly malnourished when it comes to their faith. They've been choosing disobedience all week long instead of obedience. They've been drifting away from love and grace instead of showing love and grace towards people. They've been all wrapped up in their own agendas and what they want, and that's what matters more than anything else, especially Christ's agenda. So many people come to church with these agendas on their hearts and minds that are, that are off base, and yet they look like they have it all together. They look like they got it just right, like they're making good choices in their life, like they're totally on board with the Christian way of life, but they're not. Inside, they are weak, they are frail, they are barely, barely hanging on to any sort of faith. It barely has a pulse. And if that's you today, what will you do? Will you just keep letting these opportunities go by? You know, all of us has a, I talk about how much we can relate to Peter. Well, can't we relate to Judas? I, I'm afraid when I think of how much his way of thinking makes sense to me too. But if that's you, we get these opportunities all the time from Jesus just still showing us love, still being patient with us, just giving us an opportunity after opportunity to confess and repent. And that's why we need this gathering. 
We need those reminders. We need these opportunities frequently, routinely, to deal with the sin that we have in our lives. And that's, again, what we're doing here today. So how will you respond to this opportunity? Well, when we have communion together, that's a great time to self-reflect, to examine your heart and your minds and your motives and your agenda. Am I here just trying to use this as a means of, of, a, of accomplishing something else that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I gravitating towards Jesus or away from him whenever I'm taking communion? Because you can do both. You can, you can, you, can uh, you know, have judgment on yourself with, by taking communion as well. But we're here to be nourished by it. So we take that bread to remember his life is what is sinless. And his life, when I stand before God, when I stand, on the, stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not putting hope in my works and what I've done. I'm putting hope in the works of Christ alone. He is righteous, therefore I am righteous because I have faith in his righteousness. It's imputed to me. I take that juice to remember the blood shed on the cross. I didn't undo my sin. I didn't work it off. And purgatory is not even real. I don't go work off my sin somewhere. I believe that it was atoned for in its entirety on the cross. My atonement was accomplished by Jesus on Calvary, on the cross. And that's what makes me whole. That's what makes me right before God. Let's think about these things and draw near to God in Christ in a time of communion. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you once again for an opportunity to study your word together. And I'm thankful, again, for a church that's willing to study bothersome passages of Scripture. Some of these truths aren't fun to think about, but they're so necessary. Lord, the truths that we can conclude having studied them are so important to understand you and our relationship to you, to know who we are. And Lord, I'm just so uh, thankful that we can not only study this passage in a way to understand these truths, but Lord, study this passage in a way that we can know how to live. And so I pray for all of us in here, Lord, as we scatter into our week of life, Lord, that we would live like you lived, just constantly showing love and grace and patience. Lord, as we walk into a time of communion, Lord, help us to remember your gospel message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.